This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the podcast, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, and we're back in the warehouse for Grim Artisanal Ales. Joe and Lauren Grimm are joining me for the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Joe and Lauren. Thanks for having us. Hello. I am back in New York City. I'm excited to be back in New York City. This is a city that I lived in for 10 years uh, in, the, in the 2000s, the aughts, um, and haven't been back to enough since that point. I uh, have been back a few times, but not, not nearly enough. I think only maybe twice in this, this craft beer and brewing era. Um, and so welcomed the opportunity, uh, to come over here to Brooklyn and sit down with Joe and Laura to talk about the way they are making, you know, beautiful, delicate, nuanced, uh, beers that are, uh, beautifully structured and, uh, have some real thoughts on, on how to do that, um, across the board, everything from tank geometry, influencing hazy IPAs to finding delicate balance, brewing spontaneous beers in a very urban environment without a cool ship, um, doing a lot of creative work here, but also building uh, beers that are, again, like I said, delicate, nuanced, um, perfectly, beautifully balanced, very easy to drink. And, uh, you know, and fun. Hey, we're going to talk about how they do all of that. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, GD Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. GD's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for info on patented pro carb inline carbonation technology. Profil rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline separation system, seven to fifty barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew, a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand, offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. We normally start off the podcast talking about uh, the history and the story. Uh, what's the story of Grimm? Uh, what were your arcs through beer? What uh, paths did you follow? Um, separate apart, however that looks, uh, to get here. And then uh, then we can talk about what drove you all then to create a business out of this passion around craft beer. Joe and I um, like to uh, be creative in our lives in general. And um, that goes from our home lives to... Um, the way we've made our careers. Uh, we met um, in art school uh, in like 2005 and uh, we're not only excited to be making music and visual art, but we also uh, loved experimenting in our kitchens, um, made all different kinds of beverages, um, fermented and pickles and um, yeah. you know, sourdough actually- bread. <laughs> came more from the angle of fermentation than from the angle of beer specifically. And then we sort of fell into beer as we got deeper in. We had uh, both uh, read Sander Katz's um, uh, wild fermentation book um, 
and friends of ours invited him to their warehouse to um, give a little like, you know, uh, hands on um, fermentation um, seminar. And uh, I think Wild Fermentation, the book really drove our inspiration for um, fermenting everything and anything at the time. Yeah. And so this was like the mid 2000s, which meant that what beer looked like in the U.S. was there's the most exciting thing around was Belgian beer. So we were like, you know, tasting things like Cuvée René, which is an amazing goods that you could actually get in a, a grocery store or, um, you know, Duval, <laughs> these kinds of beers, which may not seem like the sexiest thing in the world now, but they were really a re- revelation to us and you know, a total inspiration. Yeah, we were obsessed with the flavors that we were tasting in um, all of the Belgian beers that were available at the time. But, but the, they were yeah. The first things that we were making were not beers at all. We the, we were making um, wild fermented mead. I think that was our first project. We made many batches of mead in jugs where we would use a, a balloon over the lo- the the top of the jug uh, as an airlock. Mm-hmm let that balloon inflate. We would sometimes deflate the balloon and, uh, you know, we ended up with something that tasted pretty good. It was janky. <laughs> it was a, you know, it was hooch. Yeah. Maybe we'd make some blueberry honey hooch and that sort of, you know, got us into, you know, making our own alcohol making our own things. So fast forward, we, uh, you know, we're in grad school for art, um, both planned to move to New York City and uh, make ourselves an art career. And uh, you quickly realize that um, you're renting a studio that costs too much money and uh, trying to, you know, take odd jobs to make ends meet. And both of us looked at each other and said, you know, we've been making beer for years at home why don't we figure out how we can get a license and um sell it uh to sustain our art art practices (laughs) (laughs) lol yeah (laughs) one thing led to another and um here we are today what uh what what year was that where you decided to to launch a business around this it was a after we got married we got married in 2011 and so probably like that on our honeymoon, we were planning. <laughs> on our, we worked on our honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, we were planning what we were going to do. We and, were just like so excited about um, envisioning this um, being that we were about to create. Um, and yeah, so on our honeymoon, we just like sat around uh, making all of these plans. And this was the one thing that we had that, that we could make money doing. And, you know, we hadn't actually done it on a a large scale before, but, um, when we were avid home brewers, we, you know, we wanted to brew, you know, three, four times a week and we couldn't drink that much beer. So we were, you know, packaging it all up and we had our friends, uh, sign up for a beer CSA. So we would just drop off six packs you know, if they would just keep, you know, funding us, uh, homebrewing money. And then we were also selling beers at like our friends, music shows and art gallery openings. Uh, everyone, sort of yeah, everyone wants to, to drink at a, at an art opening. So, sure. um, we would always, you know, bring our homebrewed beer to our friends, art openings and set up a table and, um, 
I try to get, you know, we were like attempting to be somewhat legal. So we would sell Oreo cookies um, and give people a free beer. We're not here to incriminate you in any kind of way. So uh, <laughs> we're purely accepting optional donations to support the yeah, further to support of this the, the brewing foundation. Right. So you approach this brewery then, you know, as a art project of sorts, a creative endeavor that could realize uh, some sort of creative vision and, um, you know, and there's a, a style and an attitude towards it. How'd you all start defining that, uh, you know, uh, for the brewery itself as you launched it? And I love that idea of, just deciding to create a brewery. I mean, you all are here in New York City. It's not the easiest place to create a brewery. Um, and uh, the kind of youthful naivete to think that we can just go and do this is absolutely awesome and amazing, um, even though the city will certainly try to beat that out of you eventually and uh, yeah, and work that. Um, you know, so, you know, but you decided to, you, you were doing this coming out of an art school background, didn't necessarily have, uh, giant funding to launch a big business. What, what was the next step for you? Well, we scraped together $10,000. And then we uh, started working out of other people's breweries. We called around to... That is bootstrapped beyond bootstrapped. That is um, absolutely crazy. We had one 20-barrel <laughs> batch of beers worth of money. We, we called up um, Dan and Martha from uh, Pretty Things. Pretty Things, yeah. Um, and asked because they, them. they were friends of a friend. So we, we had an in to somewhere. And at that time, they were, you know, uh, gypsy brewing. And so we said, okay, how do, how do we get our foot in the door at a brewery that will let us make a batch of beer? And they, and said, they oh. said, I know the worst brewery. <laughs> I know the worst brewery in the East Coast. They're always, they're always available. <laughs> you should talk to them. Sounds like a great place to go try to make a good product. Yeah. So what did, so what did you end up doing? So this this brewery that they had worked at and, and had left, but yeah. that they knew would have an, an open tank was called uh, Paper City. And uh, it's it's no longer in business. It's um, in Holyoke, Massachusetts. So Joe and I would just drive to Holyoke, Massachusetts um, once a month and make a batch of beer. It was a, a real desperate holdout from like 90s craft beer. Um, sure. The guys were burnt. Um, they mainly you know. did contract brewing at the time because they couldn't sell any of their own beer. Yeah, and it was it, rough. It was a it was a tough scene in there. There was um, they didn't have any heating, mm. and this was in Western Mass. So I recall one time, uh, the toilets were frozen. <laughs> there was like no, you couldn't actually uh, use the restroom. So if you needed to do anything, you had to leave the building and just go pee in the woods. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, there were many desperate moments. Um, but uh, yeah, and like one time there was, you know, the polar vortex, you know, of I don't know whatever year. It was um, 2013. 2013. Maybe 2014. Um, caused our our beer to stop fermenting because the temperature dropped so low, and Joe and I were like, uh, we, you know, it's like <laughs> this isn't going to work. It never it never took the, off because it was like, uh, and the, it was, it was the supposed guys, to be. Yeah, it, the guys from Paper City were like, "Oh, we'll we'll buy it from you." It's it's thirty degrees in here, but so we'll we'll buy it from you and sell it at our own uh, janky bar. Yeah, but um, we were able to make some good beers there, right. nonetheless, and they were great to work with, honestly, just because they didn't mind us 
you know, doing things. They just let you do your thing. We actually brewed our first batch of double negative there that won a silver medal at GABF. Yeah. And Uh, that was was a beer that put us on the map. Um, This was one of our very earliest batches. And we, uh, that was Lauren's recipe, by the way. And uh, so we got that award and then we won the next year again with that same beer. And that really helped us to be able to sell our beer to distributors and, and to begin to have a name. It was, a, it was yeah. great. Even as an Imperial Stout? Yeah, it was an old school Imperial Stout. And we still make that beer. I love that beer. But it's like, um, it's not what people think of as a stout anymore. So, you know, when you, if you don't know what double negative is and you have that and you're like, what is this? Yeah. It's not a pastry stout. It's just a roasty, it's like a delicate little imperial stout. (laughs) 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 Um, But it's it's really great. Yeah. So at some point then you, you moved from this uh, contract brewing kind of gypsy brewing approach and decided to launch your own brewery right here and build your own production facility right here in Brooklyn. Uh, What year did that happen? And talk to me about that process. Uh, 2018 is when we opened here. I mean, really the moment so we were five years as a gypsy brewing and, and we were, um, in Massachusetts, in Virginia and on Staten Island. Those were our main sort of hubs in three different breweries that we worked with pretty closely. From the moment we started, um, uh, brewing, uh, as gypsy brewers, the idea was to open our own space. Um, we were just trying to get enough, uh, years of tax records so we could get a loan. Um, right now our, our brewery is, um, uh, just 50, 50, uh, ownership between myself and Joe. We have, um, a lot of loans. <laughs> yeah. But no investors. So and no investors. It's, yeah. uh, it's do or die. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we just, uh, made beers for, you know, years. It was like, uh, just make a batch of beer, wait to get paid. Um, then, put the money back into making another beer, um, wait 30 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I think all of, all of the, all of the moments of our brewery have been this organic growth that, um, were necessary and led us to what, uh, we are today. You know, uh, you know, some people might've thought, oh, wow, they're trying to, you know, um, put out less beer, um, to create demand, but you know, it's really like, well, we just, uh, we had $10,000. We spent $10,000. We waited. Now we have 20. <laughs> and then we waited for the money back and then put the money back in. And it just happened to be like maybe every two months we'd make a batch of beer and it, the in smallest the, batch yeah, we could make the, was the 20 very, barrels. Yeah. In the very early days, that was, that was the routine. It was like six to eight weeks. Yeah. And in those days, you could actually get a meeting with a distributor because there weren't a lot of craft, you know, breweries around. It was the right time to be coming onto the scene. So, you know, we, I, I was a bartending at a craft beer bar and had a friend of a friend who was working with a distributor. And I said, I'm, you know, Lauren and I are starting a, a brewery. Will you take our beer? And he was like, yes, sure. Let's go. And it didn't exist yet. It, it was just sort of uh, trust. This yeah, is, I, this I is your don't, don't try this at home caveat. It's a very different business now. It's, it's it a, very different a much business. more competitive landscape. Sure, You're not sure. going to get that meeting today. And we were just really lucky that that was possible at that time. 
Sure, sure. No, I, I mean, you look at a lot of arcs that brewers, especially in the Northeast, have taken, and it's almost as if like that pathway like barely existed for them, that they somehow followed through on that. I mean, it's, it's yeah. something like Treehouse. You know, it's a series of improbable events where to get to where they are now, and it's all, it's really not. It, you can't repeat that. You know, there's not a recipe for that kind of thing. It doesn't exist in another way. And yeah, and certainly, and entering- we sort of caught that wave, but yeah. also sort of missed it in a way. Like our contemporaries around 2015 or so, when uh, New England IPA was still really new and popping off. Um, in the Northeast, it was us, um, other half, tree, uh, treehouse, trillium, and tired hands. Mm-hmm. And the difference between all those places and us is that we didn't actually have a brewery, and that was a that was a painful for us to not actually be able to really capitalize on that um, the moment of of you know being able to just move tons of of cans directly out the door, right? Um, and we you know we cut the tail end of that, but uh, if we had had our own brewery at that time, it would have been something else. It also just felt like when you're brewing out of somebody else's brewery, um, they have ways that they want you to use their equipment. They have um, their own rules. And it just felt like it was a constant um, battle between me and Joe and <laughs> and like our brewery partners. Um, whereas if we had had our own brewery, you know, the sky is the limit right now. We are in Brooklyn. We started our space and our brewery in 2018, and the sky is the limit always, and it's always getting higher. Um, we're just doing new things all the time and trying out new experiments. And you know, our, um, you know, we might have started making IPA, you know, way back when we were gypsy brewers, but that um, those recipes are constantly evolving, you know, to this day, we're um, fine tuning every process and, and changing our ingredients every little bit. Yeah. So opening up our own brewery though, was really a big deal. And uh, so we, in 2018, we were finally able to make all of our beer in house and we never made another batch of gypsy brew beer after that. I mean, maybe it's a good way segue to uh, to talking about our equipment and um, all of the details of our of our beers because our experiences as gypsy brewers um, with other people's equipment um, making the kind of beer that we want to make out of other people's breweries using other people's brewery equipment inspired every aspect of our brewery, um, and how we built it here in Brooklyn. Um, every, the tank geometry, the brew house, um, you know, all of the valves we have on it and, um, yeah. Just the layout and like the sort of workflow. It was, it was a big deal for us to get that experience of seeing how a number of other places organize their process and uh, figure out how we could do one better. So you got to pick ideas from those or things that did work, things that didn't work, and kind of you know apply that as you're thinking about the space. Yeah. And looking at spaces initially and then thinking about how to lay out this particular space after you settled on it. Yeah, if we'd, if we'd had it um, all our own from the very beginning, I think we would have made a lot of mistakes that we were able to avoid. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, I want to talk about the kind of, you know, creative vision, obviously coming from art school, you, you approach this with a, you know, this, uh, you know, aesthetic in mind, um, that stretches out across the styles of beer you make, but, uh, there's also a point of view for this fermentation that you tend to adhere to. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how, you know, this kind of creative direction and how you decided what beers to make and how to, you know, build this idea of what Grimm was. Before we do that, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while. So why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, packaging beer can be a daunting task, but buying cans shouldn't be. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. Think single truckloads and half-height pallets rather than million can minimums. For a smooth packaging experience, also consider their ultra-compact single-operator canning machines. Pricing begins at $25,000 with a quick six- to eight-week lead time on most equipment. American Canning exists to help share your craft in cans. Learn more about their ecosystem of solutions at AmericanCanning.com. So you decide to create Grimm. You want to make beer, but then... uh, you know, you have to figure out what kind of beer to make and how you want the, the brand to be seen. And, you know, and that that mix of products that you make uh, is a necessary edit or, you know, and uh, folk, you know, that to focus that kind of approach. Uh, how did you all set about doing that? Uh, clearly, if you're both artists, you, everyone's got I, their own ideas. How, I mean, how did you build a collective vision for what Grimm was going to be, what it was going to make, what it was going to be known for? And then how has that changed over the years? Hmm. Well, when we started uh, as gypsy brewers, um, we said, okay, we're only making traditional Belgian style beers. So, you know, it was like Belgian single, Belgian double, um, you know, Aviales. And uh, very quickly, well, I mean, the idea there was we're excited about fermentation, um, what yeasts are giving the um, most full flavored, um, profiles. It was a yeast driven approach. So we, in, because we didn't have a brewery, we were able to sort of pick and choose yeasts, um, from batch to batch. We also, at the time we were like, oh, of course we want to be doing, um, you know, spontaneous beers and, you know, uh, put things into barrels, um, work on, um, you know, our sour program, but, uh, we were not able to do that at other people's breweries, um, because we couldn't find anyone to let us, um, do any wild, um, sour program. Yeah. Especially back then people were paranoid Mm -hmm. about bacteria and bread. Yeah. So we've come so far now. (laughs) Thank God. Now, now in brewing environments, we realize, yes, you can just sanitize all of this. You can just wash it, literally just make it clean. (laughs) So, I mean, really like, uh, Again, all of this was completely organic, no preconceived notions of building a brand at all. Um, we just, you know, we knew we wanted to experiment. So that meant making new beers all the time. We were excited about fermentation flavor. So um, we were driven to Belgian style beers, couldn't do anything wild. So that set that off uh, to the side for a long time. We uh, were still devoted to the idea of making 
sour beers. So we started doing kettle sours um, as gypsy brewers, uh, which we would have never done if we had had our own brewery. Right. Um, yeah. It was a workaround. Yeah. <laughs> and some, some of those beers were, you know, are really good. We actually just made a, a batch of super spruce, which is like a really beloved beer for our, you know, for our fans, which is a spruce tip Goza. Um, and that's one of those ones that we developed during that initial kettle souring phase. And we wouldn't have ever thought about doing a dry hop sour if it hadn't been for um, the workaround of making a kettle sour out of other people's breweries. Yeah, The clean um, fermentation profile and uh, very clean like lactic um, sourness in a kettle sour lends itself so well to um, the bright flavors of hops. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, fast forward to now we, uh, in our own space, uh, you know, again, we are just driven towards novelty for our own sake, um, and, and teaching ourselves more and more about brewing processes. So we, you know, are making all kinds of beers. Um, yeah. Like now we do spontaneous beers with mosaic and blueberries. Yeah. So what are some of the major buckets then that, that the beers you make fall into, or do you specifically try to, you know, keep playing, you know, across a, you know, a broader spread? Um, I mean, naturally you go back to, I you know, a few key pillars then of, of beer styles that, that you make more often than not. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the biggest thing for us, um, from a sales point of view is uh, hazy IPA. Yeah. Um, that's a shocker. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and that's great. I mean, that, I, I really, I, I really love that style of beer. Honestly, it's, it's so good. It's, there's a reason why it's so popular sure, and it's sure. getting a little overplayed now, but, um, it's, uh, in contrast to what a lot of other brewers may say, it's one of the hardest styles to make sure, because it's, sure. it's never good enough. You, you're, I'm never ha- happy with the beer. Uh, I, you know, you have this yeah. mental image of what you want it to be, and, and it's almost almost that. I have some very specific memories of of Tesseract, which I think you all sent out to us probably 2015 ish. Yeah, um, still relatively early days, you know, of hazy IPA as it was very much evolving. And I look at the pictures that I have of it now, and it's it's a little more orange than uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it might be now. Um, there's definitely a little more color. But I mean, having said this, it's I think it's fascinating to watch this. I look at my old pictures of Bissell Brothers Substance, mm-hmm. and it was a clear beer. Uh, and the first time that I had it, I mean, there, were, there was it was not a hazy beer. Um, you know, and so of course, these things, you know, grow, evolve and change. Um, you know, but that was, I remember even taking an extra can of that uh, and sharing it with Neil Fisher from Weldworks as before they had launched a hazy IPA um, just in that kind of like, Hey, you should try this. You know, there's something going on with this style. And uh, you know, of course things have worked out across all of these things for everybody now. Um, You know, but that has evolved for you at the same time, uh, you know, especially now in the brewery that that you all have built, you know, you've built tanks that have a specific impact and uh, you know, some beneficial impact on brewing hazy IPA. Yeah. Um, Well, I guess that goes to one of the challenges that we had making those beers in the the facility that we were previously uh, brewing them, which was, uh, we used to make them down in Beltway, um, in near DC and, uh, really appreciate those guys for everything that they, they did for us in, in our business. Um, but so their tanks were normal 90 barrel and 60 barrel tanks. And what 
we were in, we had this tank, which we could use and quote it as a 90 barrel tank, let's say, and we would fill it up to, what if we, what if we do 97 barrels in that tank? <laughs> <laughs> what could we do? Um, and we had this vigorous top fermenting yeast. So our yeast at the time was, um, is the, it, it's the sort of parent of our current yeast. And we can talk about that later, but, uh, it was a, the London Ale 3, which not a lot of people had caught on to yet. Um, so, but the thing about that yeast is, is that it makes so much foam. It's a crazy top cropper and it would just rocket up to the top of the beer and then just start pouring out of the blow off arm, just like just foam all over the floor every time. And no matter, we'd, we'd like take the fill level in the tank down and down. It would just like shoot out and, uh, it didn't care about anything like firm capital. You could throw things at it and it, it would just come out of the tank. And the result was that our <laughs> beer would stop fermenting. It would get almost. halfway <laughs> it would get halfway through its fermentation and then just Creep. The, the cell count in the beer would be low. And so it would just or we'd get around to like six Plato and then it would just start lagging and just it would go down like point two a day, another point two the next day. And we'd be like, Oh my God. How, we can't make beer this way. We'd never know when it was going to be finished because it had this really low cell count in the beer. And around the same time, we, you know, we were beginning to talk a little bit to Yvonne from uh, De La Seine, and he had all these ideas about tank geometry and how you'd get better for you'd get um, better esters if the beer was under less pressure. So, like optimally, it would be like a one to one ratio, like a, for, for the yeast and for, um, the, the ester profile. Um, yeah, it would be better if the, the tank were more like a one to one and we had more like a 10 to one. It was not, yeah, we were not doing that. And so we had, all, we were having these problems. So when we designed our own tanks, um, we decided that we were going to smush them out and flatten them so that they're sort of more stout looking than most fermenters that you see and they're also they're mostly cone <laughs> the 60 barrels <laughs> right the 60 barrel tanks yeah. are mostly cone and then there's just a little cylinder on top um in order to get the you know the least amount of pressure on the most amount of the yeast um and by spreading the surface area of the fermenting beer out we were able to reduce the amount of, of foaming that we had hmm. and less less yeast would come out of the top of the tank and end up on the floor. So you get more reliable. By less foaming, not necessarily less like Krausen, but more of like it's spread out. Therefore it's not being funneled into the blow off arm. Like if you imagine like pouring beer into a wide glass with the same amount of vigor that you pour it into like a, a champagne flute, the champagne flute, the, you know, the foam just comes right out. But if it's got a, a wider surface area, you, you know, you have a little bit more leeway. So that was one of the yeah, reasons right. that we changed that, the shape of the... That CO2 yeah. is breaking out and coming through, then it has more top surface area to bubble through rather than the same amount of bubbles trying to go through a thinner, narrower you know, surface. And so it would spread that. Right? It's it less likely that. to overflow. Right. The, yeah, the, the more fluted your glass is, the more, the more easily it overflows. The same is, same is true in a tank. That's interesting. And so you had less issues with losing yeast and not being able to then repitch yeast. Um, how did that actually impact ester production in something like London Ale 3? 
we think that the more pressure on the yeast, the the more restrained that ester production the is. The hydrostatic pressure suppresses um, the ester development is the idea. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, the idea would be that by um, changing the tank geometry, we have um, more um, esters and more um, kind of fruity aromatics that are developing from the yeast. That's our opinion. We don't have any data to back it up. Like it would be very interesting. One to one test yeah. on that. Like this is how we did it over here on this tank. You know, because you don't have those tanks anymore. That's but. right. But all of so, um, you know, the effect of of having all of these issues as gypsy brewers, um, we obviously, um, you know, uh, ha- made our tanks um, a specific geometry. But I think it also. Uh, made us think, wow, okay, if um, we were losing all of our yeast onto the floor and it's just going down the drain, why don't we... Why don't we not lose that yeast? Yeah, why don't we make our yeast go out of the blow-off arm and capture it? Yeah. So the first version of this idea was something that my brother set up um, when he was was working for the brewery at the time, and he made a little octopus of... um, It was eight... Uh, half kegs all daisy chained together and we were we were like what if we just blow off through this assembly and in this they'll catch the yeast uh, as as we're blowing off um, and that actually worked and suddenly we had like a bunch of kegs full of yeast uh, and we're like okay this is we're onto something we can use that and so he started looking through the yeast and he's like this is the healthiest yeast I've ever seen look at these cells they're like they're so beautiful and there's <laughs> And there's nothing in there. Like ordinarily, you know, if you're bottom cropping that yeast, then it's full of all of this hot particle and just and dead yeast, dead um, yeast, grain bits. It's just a, a mess. You're under also, the slide. you know, there it's like striated, right? You know, the yeast are flocking out over time. So when you um, are bottom cropping, you get a bunch of different um, cells. You're not necessarily uh, going to get the the cells that you want you're going to be getting cells that might flock early um and uh, aren't going to perform as well in your beer but it turned out that the the yeast that we were able to get by harvesting it from the blow-off arm was like just this creamy like much more consistent much more high cell count and much healthier and you think about like how were these yeasts developed? Uh, you know, we, uh, you know, London L three. It's uh, it used to be Boddington's, as yeah, far as I understand. They, they right. took a shovel and they had they a, open the fermenters. The they shoveled the yeast off at High Cross Inn and um, threw it in the next uh, open fermenter. That's what that yeast wants to do. And um, so we don't want to be capturing the the worst yeast uh from our fermentation we want to get the best yeast and so we started to uh yeah um be smart about harvesting so yeah once we got that going we were like okay this this is very good yeast and let's just see what happens let's keep going with it um so we would just repitch it repitch it and repitch it and just you know keep looking at it and tasting and trying to figure out whether we were whether it was going in a direction that we liked and, um, and this is still London Ale 3, but you're now deep into multiple generations on this? Yeah, so now it's been, we've been repitching it for years here. So we're the currently... Same, the same London Ale 3, you've just been repitching it 
for years. Yeah. So now we're on generation 275. What? Of that yeast. And uh, so one of the things that I'm very excited about is just, this is how these yeasts came to be. Like the, the canonical yeasts that brewers use that are associated with, you know, breweries like, like Boddington's or Chimay or, um, you know, Schneider. Uh, you look at these specific kinds of yeasts that as brewers you sort of order off a menu and realize that they all evolved under specific circumstances making specific beers and they became themselves through lots of iterations and genetic and epigenetic change. So that's what we, that's what we hope to do. We hope to develop our own house strain that's no longer London Ale 3 and we might already be there. I, so I think it's, it has a little were, bit of a different yeah. performance than what we used huh. to get. Um, that's why yeah. you referred to London L3 as the parent of your current yeast, because that's where you are now. Well, how does this yeast that now, you know that is now some 275th generation, like the the thought of that is just fascinating to me because, of course, I've talked to many brewers who are like, if I can get you know five or six pitches out of this, I'm happy, or I pitch a fresh pitch mm-hmm. every single time, or you know, after 10 or 11 pitches, it just won't, it'll always go clear for us. It won't hold any, you know, haze. And everyone's got their own story where driving deeper into generations on something like London Ale 3 can just get finicky. Um, and, and yet there it is. And you're still, you're now on generation 275 and, and it's still, what, what's different about it now from a performance as well as a sensory and, and flavor pers- perspective? Well, it's still very very fruit forward. It's, it's still kind of peachy and makes this sort of peach ring fruit, you know, fruity Northeast IPA flavors. But one of the things that started to happen with it was uh, that the attenuation was getting more and more intense. Yeah. It started to really dry the beer out more and more over time. So, you know, uh, Joe and I are always playing around with recipes, but um, just, you know, for different reasons. But one of those reasons is to accommodate changes in our house yeast. So as it, uh, you know, ferments out uh, drier and drier, we might be adjusting, you know, our mash temperature or, you know, some other thing. Yeah, we had like a quasi-religious opposition to using crystal malt and IPA forever. And then at some point we were just like, okay, this, these beers are finishing too low. They're no, they're no longer giving us the, the level of sweetness that we need in these beers. So we started throwing some crystal at it, but it turned out that that we were right. The crystal isn't the answer. <laughs> what was the answer then? Uh, mash temperature. Yeah, now we just mash it real hot. We mash. We're, we've been mashing recently at like one fifty eight. Oh wow! Um, just to give a little bit more of that maltotriose and you know present more of a challenge that you so it doesn't doesn't dry it out, and that's that's working for it. What is your general goal for a single IPA hazy beer? Like what is, you know, where do you want it to land and what is too dry? I think four is nice for most singular and double four to four to five is kind of maybe, I don't know, or three, eight, three, eight to four, eight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least you're being honest about it. Yeah. So still, you know, relatively relatively sweet in order to, to bring out the, that fruit character. Yeah, when I say it was getting dry, it was getting down to like three zero two eight. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Which yeah. It was a different, um, just you know, it was good. It just wasn't what people wanted if they wanted to have a Lambo door. 
Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. And then there's definitely a consumer expectation around that. And you've got a bunch of peers where people know what the style is and they expect that style. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in a, beyond the yeast, you know, are there other ways that you put a, a grim spin on hazy IPA? Or is there something that people expect from your take on this style? We don't put milk sugar into them. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, I think Maybe it's no more lactose what, house. You know, just as just as important as what you do do is what you don't do. Yeah, you know, and yeah, I, I like Lauren's point, but another thing is just. Something that we've realized about IPA is that the thing that is making the haze is the same thing that's making the astringency. It's a polyphenol, you know, structure. And for us, it's always a, it's a balancing act between like, you know, there's something pleasant about the, you know, the, the mouthfeel that the haze brings. But once it gets up beyond a certain point, uh, it can feel tannic, right? And a lot of the hazy IPAs that we don't like are these very tannic, astringent, actually, results. And so we try to not do that. We try to have them still feel uh, light and delicate. What do you use to do that? Yeah, you're right. Like this, there's that theory that these, these, what, you know, protein polyphenol complexes that are creating that haze, but it is right. That polyphenol that creates that, that burn, that green flavor that the most yeah. people associate with uh, excessive dry hopping or beers that are and that's uh, what, pushed out. That's quickly. what a tannin is. Right. You know, it's a polyphenol. And, you know, like there's that product that they used to sell. Maybe they still do to make your uh, wheat beer uh, stay hazy called uh, Tenal A. And it, it was um, just like some tannins that you could throw into the wheat beer and then it would just throw a permanent haze into the beer. Um, so it's a, it's a trade-off. And I guess one of the things that we've figured out is that, you know, we got a, a centrifuge about a year ago and, you know, pushing the beer through the centrifuge, it reduces the tannic perception of the beer. So you can get a little, you can get away with, with more. Um, yeah, I mean... I guess, uh, I don't know. We, we play around with when we're adding the hops, um, play around with temperature. Yeah. Hop rate, different kinds of products, you know, what, how the degree of leaf material that's in there. Cause that's, that's uh, really, different hop products. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I've always thought that there was just a, a general lightness, you know, to the the IPAs, the hazy IPAs that you make that was very pleasant to drink and, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed them. And, I, you know, it's interesting to get some perspective on that. Um, but I love this idea that you're diving deep into a new generation on your yeast every every single time um, and finding ways to make it work. I want to, you know, shift gears, maybe talk about some mixed fermentation beers. Yeah. Lauren's going to have to get out of here in a minute, but I would love to talk about some some mixed fermentation beers. I know that's a, that's a big thing here. Of course, spontaneous beers as well, which you make in an unconventional way here in an urban environment because urban environments apparently make, make the best Lambic and Lambic style spontaneous beer. Um, before we do that, ABS Commercial is a full service brewery outfitter proud to offer brew houses, tanks, 
the small parts to brewers across the country. They stock equipment ranging from three barrels to 90 barrels and offer custom designed equipment up to 900 barrels. Contact one of their brewery consultants today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your brewery project. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Also, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked at the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and frozen for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfectpuree, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. So let's talk a little bit about uh, you know this. Let's talk about the spontaneous program. And then we can talk about some of the the mixed fermentation from there. Uh, you've got a thirty barrel brew house, and uh, yet you don't have a cool ship, and yet you do spontaneous inoculation here with uh, an interesting combination of of equipment that you already have in place. Talk to me a little bit about about how that looks. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a, an extremely traditional, um, process for our spontaneous beers. Um, yeah, decoction mash, uh, or turbine mash, you mean, sorry, yeah. turbine mash, um, and, uh, you know, raw wheat, um, uh, we ferment them in the barrel, um, age for one to three years, um, when we opened our space, we knew that we didn't have uh, a lot of square footage. So um, rather than, uh, you know, getting this kind of luxury item <laughs> of the cool ship, um, we thought about how we could use our own brew house to uh, to inoculate, uh, to cool and inoculate um, the wort for our spontaneous program. So, you know, we cool with our uh, plate chiller and then we um, spread the wort out amongst our three vessel brew house um, and leave it over the weekend to inoculate, uh, you know, with uh, whatever yeast and bacteria are in the in the brewery. Yeah, sometimes we'll set a box fan up on the manways of the, the vessels to just blow air over the surface. If you think about what a what a cool ship does it actually does two things and it was intended to cool beer it wasn't intended to inoculate beer um so the cool the cooling of the beer is the primary function and then the inoculation is like a secondary thing for us it's nice to be able to chill the beer down to you know less than room temperature get down we, we like 60 um and then we spread the 60 word Fahrenheit. Out. yeah we spread the word out across the three vessels of the brew house. So we have actually a lot of surface area so that the surface area is probably roughly the same as what you would see um, in a traditional cool ship. And then we just. Even if that you know, surface is still constrained with a, by the top of a tank with a, you know, a, a port on the top, it's not a right. big wide open uh, surface for. That's why know. we use a fan to blow air in there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So why pre-cool then your, your, you know, this wart to 60 degrees before you then let it sit and you still let it sit overnight in that environment? Yeah. The reason that we pre-cool it is because unlike a cool ship, it's a, it's a closed space, right? right. If we just let it, um, cool over time in that space, it would stay warm for way too long. And then we'd, we'd be seeing lots of enterobacter and other like warm, warm loving bacteria and yeast that we want to avoid. 
it also allows us to make uh, these spontaneous beers at any time of the year. Uh, we don't, you know, usually uh, the traditional way would be to wait until um, the outside temperatures are what, I don't know. 50 or yeah, less. 50 or lower. Yeah. Um, which you would need because you need the wort to cool down faster. Um, in our case, <laughs> this is basically our bet is that the reason lambic needs to be made in the winter is less about the mix of yeast and bacteria, which is what people tend to say about mm -hmm. it and more about the temperature of the beer as it's cooling, because a, a lot of things can happen, uh, to a sugary substance that's hanging out at 105 degrees that you don't want. Um, and the longer it spends in that cool down time, according to our logic, the, you know, the worse sort of the, the le less clean of a spontaneous product you're going to end up with. Um, so, so how, yeah. how does that work out in practice then? Because right, you know, but then there's also that lambic argument that it is some of those less desirable, you know, enterobacter and whatnot that they are seeing act early on in the, the fermentation process in the first day or two that then get outcompeted by the next, you know, you know, some of the studies that I've read on that kind of show this arc. And, you know, mm -hmm. the question is, can you get flavorful, spontaneous beer that does actually ferment and that actually can, you know, where do some of those create precursors then that can get worked on by the next layer, you know, the next level of, of fermenting compounds, you know, and, you know, keep moving through there. You know, if you are jumping forward, it's like, you know, you're just fast forwarding to the 60 degree point. You know, it's, it's, you are definitely self-selecting something there. Yeah. We're um, changing, we're changing the conditions under sure, which sure. those, those yeasts will, will get going. Right. And, and there's not, I mean, and again, there's no wrong or right. There's only what works and clearly it works. The beers that we had earlier were really fantastic. I'm just curious yeah. how this works. In my experience, talking to Lambic producers and, you know, also reading and listening to everything that they have to say, they're typically looking for the same thing that we're looking for, which is for a young lambic that is very uh, clean. You know, it should taste clean before it's finished. <laughs> uh, the, this idea that there's going to be cabbagey notes or like off flavors in your young lambic and then that's going to somehow turn around later is not, that isn't what, those producers will actually tell you right if you ask they'll be like no you want it to, to taste nice starting yeah. out and soft just gentle <laughs> citrusy you know a little bit bitter it should be rough because it's too bitter because the you know it hasn't aged out of it yet right yeah and the, as that bitterness is coming down then it will allow the the lactic acid bacteria and brett you know to um take over sure so then you cool to 60, you let it sit for overnight, you know, was that 12 hours or? We've tried it overnight. We've tried it also just like over the weekend. Oh. You know, as long as, in our opinion, it, it'll work as long as you don't let it actually begin fermenting. And it, we haven't ever had it take off that fast. Um, it's very, it's, it's almost, you know, ready to go after a weekend, but, uh, We'll take samples and yeah. look at it under the microscope and see what our cell count is. We, we, we just like, we want to see some stuff in there <laughs> and we, you know, we look at it and say, yes, it's got some bugs getting going. And then we just mix it all back together. One tank 
to homogenize it and then, you know, rack it into barrels. And then we're um, letting it go through its primary fermentation in the barrels. And then we top it, top it up after primary and put it away in this building. Uh, and then we don't really taste it for a year. After that, we'll start dipping into it and seeing what we've got. Have you studied what is in that, what you are picking up here? And do you have an idea of what it is that is fermenting this beer? Whether, whether that's some wild sack or whether that, you know, whether there's what kind of brett that might be, or if there are lactic acid producing bacteria, lactobacillus, pediococcus, uh, or do you have an anecdotal idea of what that might be? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just works. No, we don't want to know. Okay. You're going to lean into the, the mystery, <laughs> mystery of it all. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's, uh, some wild saccharomyces some wild bretonomyces and pediococcus and i don't really know whether our lactobacillus gets in there we do have like a, a lactobacillus that we use in-house for other things but it's so hop sensitive that i don't really think it's doing anything in these beers yeah we like we like a lot of aged hops in our spontaneous beer so it's uh i think it's more coming from pedia does it go through that kind of pedia ropey phase that you're able to kind of identify through that or not really. No. <laughs> okay. We have gotten that, but only from some of the the fruits and things that we've added. Okay. Yeah. And it generally starts rare. F- fermenting uh, like vigorous. I mean, it's not going to be vigorous. It's a wild, spontaneous fermentation. But uh, how long does it take to really start noticeably fermenting in a barrel? Oh, it'll. we've had it take as long as a month, but usually it'll be going, you know, in a week. Mm-hmm. And then it'll it'll be done with its primary phase probably in another week. And you and have at, at that yeah. point it stops, stops foaming out. It stops, you know, going, going wild. Then we d- just top it up to try to minimize the amount of air in there. And, uh, that's that. So through this process, again, you just, you'll let it sit for a while at, at 60 degrees. Um, you know, it kicks in fermenting like, like, and you can do this any time of the year because now you've already done the pre-cooling down to that kind of, target temperature in the summertime, you know, again, some of that conventional lambic logic. And when I say, you know, I, I don't mean to um, speak negatively of anyone that yeah. holds some of this, this, you know, common wisdom, uh, as we all know, there's a new great book from Roth Mertz, uh, who's written about the history of lambic and just released a book. I can't um, wait to read it actually. Yeah, that it's on really my dispels a lot of these myths, these, you know, a lot of the romantic and, uh, you know, nostalgic uh, fantasies that we have about this or, are a little misplaced and get repeated just to you know drive certain notions, uh, but the reality is that a lot of those things aren't that way. There, there's just Belgian brewers are trying to make beer, and this is how they ended up making beer. You're trying to make beer that has a nice, delicate taste, a little bit of acidity, um, you know, but just has that kind of beautiful, small, balanced uh, funk, but also is light and drinkable. Um, clearly, you are making that, um, you know, and you're saying you can't, and you can do that any time of year. Is there any environmental variability then to that spontaneous inoculation process? Uh, does it change at various times of the year? We're, we're still learning, Yeah, you know, um, we've only been at this yeah. for, I think our first, uh, crop of open work was the open work 2020, um, which was a one year spontaneous beer. So we started them in 2019. So now we're, we're just now getting to three years of experience, but we used up all of our 2020 already. So we haven't been able to make like a goods analog of one, two and three year 
beer um, yet. We'll do that next year. Um, so yeah, we're you know we're we're pretty new uh, to doing the process, but we don't really taste a big difference between wintertime and summertime batches. Um, if I was going to speculate, I'd say that it's you know really down to the fermentation temperatures that we see because you know this room that we're in now is where the barrels reside, um, which is you know it's a, the warehouse across the street from the main brewery. The temperatures in here are not as controlled. You know, we've we've got some uh, blowers in here that we use to keep it from getting below 50 degrees in the wintertime. And then in the summertime, it gets up to probably 80 degrees. Uh, so there's some variability there. Um, we're going to keep gathering data and figure out, you know, what we see. But, you know, the the actual primary fermentation takes place, you know, in a like a room temperature space across the street so that part is relatively the same and then it's just sort of the temperature of the aging so i I think it's looking out for you know acetic acid and acetaldehyde and uh you know sharpie marker type notes which are when we when we do tend to get off flavors it'll be that acetic and sharpie thing that that we're looking for and you know don't use those barrels um, of of the barrels that you then ferment, uh, you know how how much typically will you use? How much doesn't make it into uh, a beer event? You know, is there a percentage that you tend to not be able to to make work? We haven't figured out what that is yet. <laughs> okay, you know, it's still early days. On yeah, that. it's still yeah. early days. I mean, the other thing is just you know how can we use it? So if we have something that's showing a little bit too much. Uh, acetic acid and we, we do have lots of other beers that we're making so we've got you know, like a regular golden sour base which is more of like a you know regular saccharomyces a brett and a and a blend of lactobacillus and that is an extremely consistent beer that maybe doesn't quite have that little bit of the little edge of acetic funk to it mm-hmm. and it doesn't have the same age top character so if we you know if we have some barrels that are going a little bit just touching into acetic territory then it might be good to to mix to blend that into our other uh, stock go oh, into a different kind of beer yeah yeah that makes sense and you do use aged hops i mean they're hanging in the rafters over on this side uh, they're hanging hanging on the wall and the other side uh, just pellets hanging in bags aging away yeah um those are hops that we're using for our New York only spontaneous beers. Cause mm-hmm. you know, we're making some certain ones, certain batches uh, with only New York uh, pills and raw wheat. And you know, what else do we need? We need aged hops, but we, you know, we weren't able to get aged uh, pellets, which is what our brew house will handle um, from New York producers. So, you know, we just buy some cascades <laughs> that they're, they always have. And they're happy to get rid of like their 2016 cascades or whatever it is that they've got. We hang them up and wait for them to go nice and brown before we use them. I think they end up being, you know, a mix of an aged and a non-aged character. Because mm. if you really open up the center, the color, there'll be some color gradient from the, the more brown and right. yellow on the outside to slightly less brown in the, in the middle because <laughs> the, the pellets are pretty compact. Right. Um, 
But, you know, in our research about Lambic, Lambic wasn't always made only with aged hops. Um, a lot of, you know, historically a lot of Lambic was made with fresh hops or with a mix of fresh and aged hops. So it feels like it's in the spirit and it feels like it's extra in the spirit since the reason we're doing it is to be able to use local ingredients, local fruit, and, you know, this right. is the way that we can do it. And it's, you you know, clearly you're not making Lambic you're in the United States. You're making your own beer. It's inspired by Lambic and you can choose which parts of that you want to, you know, to, to take or. Yeah, that's um, right. There's no really any rules, even though we want to, you know, create some of these ideas around those kinds of things. There, there are certain things that, that feel more compelling, but really, you know, it comes down to is a really nice beer. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few consumers that are like, well, I really like this one better because it was spontaneously fermented. Well, I mean, I I think that is, you know, it's, that's cool. It is cool. (laughs) It is, it is definitely cool. Okay. I'll give you that. Um, (laughs) well, let's talk about, uh, you know, then, uh, you know, the next step of that, you know, you, you're aging here and and taking that stock through, you know, its lifespan. Um, you know, how do you describe or, or, you know, how that beer ends up tasting or what your goal is. Um, what's the range as you start then building blends out of this stock? You know, how far does it go in any specific direction? And, uh, you know, what's the kind of the midpoint on some of those? And, uh, you know, how would you describe it from a sensory perspective? And then, you know, having defined what those parameters are, how do you then mentally start building an idea of, of what you will blend together for a specific beer? Okay. Um, that's a lot of questions. Let me see if I can remember most of them. I can add a few uh, more in there if, uh, <laughs> if you want me to confuse the heck out of you. Well, uh, when we're making the blend, uh, what we are looking for, we're looking for complexity and we're looking for drinkability. And there are specific markers that you know we blend to. Um, we're looking for something that has a gentle acidity, not like crazy sour, um, we have other, you know, we have other stuff that that we make here that is more sour than the spontaneous. The spontaneous should be tart. Um, we're looking for a nice aged hop funk with that sort of indescribable goods aroma that I, I, I still have, I still struggle to describe in words, but it's that sure it's that aroma that that you find in Lambic. We want that. Um, we're looking for just the tiniest touch of acetic acid, which uh, it's, it's like a salt. It, if you have just the little right amount, then it makes it interesting and like makes the flavors pop. But if you have too much, then it's undrinkable. So we want just a touch of that. Now we're looking for really a, a fairly clean. We're looking for clean funk, I guess. Yeah. Clean funk. That's a, I mean, it's a nice way to put it. So um, when we, we look through the, you know, the things on the table, we'll find different, different barrels have different character. And the spontaneous beers are much more difficult to blend than the other ones because they're, they're much less consistent. Mm. So we'll, we'll find barrels that are just, that's clean and nice, but it's boring. Um, and then, you know, we'll find some that are very aggressive. So, you know, every once in a while, it'll be from the same batch of beer. One of the barrels because they're all fermenting separately will just be really aggressive and lactic or maybe it's, you know, beginning to get some acetic character and we're like, that's not very good on its own. Sometimes you find like the gold star barrel. That's like, that's a single barrel. So it's just putting these together and the really aggressive barrels 
obviously are dangerous and they, they want to go in at a low rate. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's like a bull in a China shop. You got to try yeah, to you, keep it. If you've got like four boring barrels and one really aggressive, sometimes that, you know, those things all together might make something really beautiful. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. How do you think about, uh, you know, what the eventual pathway will be in terms of ingredients or fruit with these? Do you then start with the idea of using some ingredient and then find barrels to fit that? Or do you work from, you know, the, the inspiration of, of that blend as it's developing and think about how to build complementary, uh, you know, additions to that or some mix of both? We're usually starting with the fruit. Yeah. And then we, and then we add the beer to the fruit. Um, actually, that that's uh, another interesting point, maybe, is that we're doing a lot of things with whole fruit, um, and we do carbonic maceration of those fruit. Hmm. Uh, we actually have a whole series of beers that are um, that may have spontaneous beer, uh, stock blended into them, but are not fully spontaneous beers, which is uh, called gathering. Everything in that series is a carbonic maceration of whole local fruit. And for many of the, the spontaneous beers, we'll be using the same process, which involves um, just putting the whole fruit into a, a CO2 purged environment, which causes a chemical fermentation inside of the fruit. And they'll, they'll build up pressure and eventually they'll split open the, the skin of the fruit and uh, you know the fruit juice will run out of its own accord, already partially fermented at like 2% two, 2 alcohol or something. Um, and then is there any head course, pressure then on the tank or is that just a, you know, a pretty close to atmosphere, but CO fully CO2 purged environment? We've tried it both ways. When we first did it, we were doing it with head pressure and, but, uh, we realized that that wasn't the point of it. The point of it is to, to deny oxygen to the fruit. Mm. Um, you're not trying to squish it. You're just trying to keep all the oxygen away from it. It's the opposite of squishing. Okay. Because the pressure is building up it. inside the fruit. We're yeah. trying to burst it, right? So one of the things that we have tried, and I don't, I don't actually know whether this worked any better, was pressurizing it at first with the idea that it, it would slowly pressurize in the fruit as well and then depressurizing uh. it and with the, <laughs> the hope that all the fruit would go pop. Yeah. Which maybe worked, but we couldn't see. Yeah. And it works anyway. So um, at this point, we're, we just keep them well flushed and you know mostly uh, at atmosphere but you, as as yeah. they begin to break then of course they come in contact with their own yeast and bacteria that's on the surface of those fruits um and then it'll begin to ferment so you obviously can't keep it capped right yeah so uh how do you process and are there specific fruits that you do this with uh and not for others are there or is this just a general all fruit process um, and then how, when you process and clean those fruits or prep those fruits, if you're not clean, um, you know, do you, or are some of these going in with stems or de-stemming? Um, how do stones you know, and stone fruits fit into this? Or are you de-seeding things? You know, talk to me a little bit about some of that process. And then, then like what, like how long does that carbonic maceration process take? Uh, we usually let it go for, you know, 10 to 14 days. Um, the fruits will be, I guess you're not cutting it if you're trying to make it burst on its own. Yeah. So there's, we have more confidence in the bursting if it's some kind of berry. Okay. <laughs> the berries work amazing, right? Uh, berries, anything small, like it's not, 
really feasible for us to slice tart cherries. They're just, they're little. Sure. That beer that you had before was a, a tart cherry, a beer that went through a carbonic maceration and we just put the, t- put the cherries in. That was that. Um, let them burst. We, you know, we ended up with a cherry wine and then we matched, uh, you know, we blended to that, to the taste of that cherry wine. Um, for larger things like peaches or things that don't have the same sort of surface tension of the skin that we, where we can imagine it bursting, <laughs> uh, then we'll slice. So for peaches, we just cut it in half yeah, and let, you know, throw the whole thing in. Sometimes for some of the, I believe this year it was the apricots that we uh, partially removed the pits. We took half the pits out of the apricots, <laughs> <laughs> but mostly we're on the pits. Okay. Um, and one of the things that we got uh, into uh, recently was wine grapes. We've been, been working a lot with wine grapes and we like the results of that so much that we um, are also starting a winery. Um, but so that it's so, very in vogue right now to start your own winery at the brewery. Yeah, it's going to have its own name. It'll be called Physica, P H Y S I C A, and we're going to have our our first wines coming out this fall. We we just tasted them and we're like these are these are too good to be a brewery side project. Yeah, it, it deserves to have its own life. But so what we do with those is is the same as with the other carbonic uh, fruits in a way. We'll put them in the tank. Sometimes we'll crush some of them, um, just, you know, but, you know, foot treading or smashing them down with a tool. And then we let them, you know, macerate in a CO2 purged environment until they release their juices and auto ferment. And then we'll, uh, depending on wh- whether we're making wine or beer, we'll either rack beer onto that or we'll just rack the wine into barrels and let it age. Uh, it's uh, pretty simple, but it's it's working well so far. Sure, sure. Um, so then, with the you know on the beer side with this carbonic maceration, you go through that process. It comes out starting to ferment. It's got a couple of percent in it. Um, you know, how do you then you just layer beer like pump beer into the same tank? Uh, you know, what, what's that yeah. next process? Yeah, we leave the leave the fruit you in the tank the fruit and we rack the fruit. We like the the beer onto it. And you don't pull it off. How long does it generally then contact have the beer stay in contact before you, uh, you either transfer or strain out, uh, you know, that kind of fruit? Um, usually two weeks or so. Um, at that point that the juice has already come out of the fruit mostly and it's already fermented because it's, it's already auto fermented, yeah. right? So yeah. it's like a second spontaneous fermentation. There's one that's happening as a fruit wine, spontaneous fruit wine, and then another one's the spontaneous beer or the barrel aged beer. So we, you know, we taste what we've got and we come up with a blend to match it, push the beer in, make sure that it's stable, that it's, it's done fermenting, and then we'll rack it off of those solids and, uh, get ready to package it. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, since this is going through its own, you know, spontaneous, well, you know, surface yeast fermentation process from yeast that's on the fruit itself first. Um, how does that impact the overall sensory, you know, uh, of the beer? Like, do you find that that expresses, you know, that fruit flavor in a different kind of way than if you had say thrown that fruit into a, you know, into a, 
a beer with you know with yeast where the beer yeast would do the uh, fermentation work on it i know this is a bit abstract and a little bit narrow to think about i'm just curious about that one way that i can think about your question is is really the difference between whole fruit and puree right because when it the, the motivation for the carbonic process as we as we you know looked into these beers was how are we going to use these fruit that we don't actually know how to get into how do we expose the innards of the fruit to the beer the answer to that is, is i suppose that there's just different fruits <laughs> that we're able to get here that are made you know that are grown nearby yeah and that you know they have their own special qualities and then there's also more of a it's got more contact with the skins of the fruit as you know proportionally compared to the guts of the fruit and that probably brings a little bit more you know just a different character sure. sometimes that sure. in my imagination anyway the puree beers seem a little more flabby interesting it's it is very hard much to, more sugar focused well i mean by the time the the yeast is done with it that right, won't right. anywhere it won't anymore be the case yeah, yeah i don't know it's it's hard for me to separate my own romantic ideas about the fruit which i've just like eaten as a as a fruit before sure. it went into the beer sure. versus like getting a drum of um you know a drum of peach puree it just doesn't have right. the same vibe i i know what you're talking about yeah well we're getting on in time here. Let's let's pull out a little bit and uh, and think about the big picture. What uh, what do you hope to achieve now that you know you've, you're four or five years in now with your own production brewery here in Brooklyn? Um, after doing your stint uh, contract brewing and gypsy brewing uh, at various spots around the East Coast, um, you've you've got a number of GABF medals to your name you know, across some styles, you know, Belgian beer and stout and whatnot. Um, what do you hope to achieve next? You're brewing almost nine thousand barrels of of beer here, which is pretty significant production for a a spot in Brooklyn. I mean, it's an ambitious thing to try to make to build a production facility doing that much beer. In an environment like New York City, which is a, a difficult, yeah. it's a difficult environment to make anything in at, at scale. Getting rid of grain is hard around here. Sure, yeah. you can't just call your farmer up who comes and picks yeah. it up and takes it away. And they also are pretty um, tight about things like wastewater because it's a giant city. And the, um, yeah, you know, it's hard. right. So, what do you hope to achieve, and uh, what will success look like, uh, or have you achieved that already? What do you? What's this? goal for the next phase of grim we don't really do goals everything okay. everything that lauren and i do is just iterating and it's just taking it's um taking one step and looking at where you are and thinking where what else what else is possible what can we do you know so we we're like a tinkering based brewery and a tinkering based business we sort of look at you know what's the next fun project and uh we just try to do it so right now we're building out a rooftop bar and a, going to make a, a pizzeria up there, which is going to be our own take on like a New Haven style thin crust pizza. That's going to be fun. Um, the wine is a big, big one for us. Sure, sure. And then, you know, right now I'm researching grapes that'll grow on some land that we have up in the Catskills, potentially. Like what, what are some of the grapes that would actually survive, uh, you know, a Catskills winter? Maybe we can... You know, have our own estate wines one of these days soon. That would be fun. 
getting better at spontaneous beer. You know, we have yet, yet to release our first one, two, and three year blend. How can we make, you know, make that better, take it to the next level? Hazy IP is never good enough. How can, how can, the, <laughs> how can the Hazy IP be better? Sure, you know? sure. Figuring out the answers to those questions, like, you know, just staying curious and following, following up on that curiosity. Yeah. Trying and exploring and seeing where you find yourself. No. That's great. Well, I think that's a, a good place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Brew like a pro with Pro Brew. Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate blends mimic straight concentrates at a better price point. American Canning provides packaging supplies at competitive prices and order quantities catered to craft. ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery outfitter for brewers across the country and craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Of course, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know that this content matters to you. We certainly do appreciate your support. Um, Joe, if people want to uh, learn more about Grim Artisanal Ales, uh, where, do they, where do they find you all, both in real life and out there in the digital world yeah uh, uh, come to the brewery it's a uh, 990 metropolitan avenue it's in the williamsburg slash bushwick sort of border and in, in brooklyn um it's easy to come out here on the train and it's also there's actually parking a lot of the time just a few you know a couple blocks from the Graham stop on the l train piece of cake to get to yep um and we're close to a bunch of other great breweries you can also visit interborough kcbc evil twin um make a day of it it's a good it's a good trip at Grim Ales. That's our handle. At so Grim Ales. G-R-I-M-M. Grim Ales. Well, thanks to you and to Lauren for joining me on the podcast. I'm sorry we had a, got fed into family time here, but appreciate you all making the time to talk with me. Thanks, Nonetheless, Jamie. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Cheers. Thanks. It was fun. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.